Welcome to the 323rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, my conversation is with public health expert, Esther Chernak. Esther's been a frequent guest on COVID Calls. Very excited to have her back. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern time. This is a special COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, August 17th, 2021, there are 4,373,870 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers, as I have been doing, numbers which strike me now as inaccurate and not a good way to visualize the suffering of this disaster, I'm going to continue raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know more about in addition to the death totals. Here's a number we don't know that I would like to know. How many overtime hours have nurses worked around the world since January of 2020? I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy also for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now with two brief news items. Headline, Florida School District Rattled by COVID-Related Teacher Deaths Days Before Classes Begin. This appeared in NBC News August 14th, 2021 by Antonio Planas. Two teachers and one teaching assistant died this week from complications of COVID-19, rattling a school district in southern Florida only days before students are scheduled to return to classrooms, officials said. Deaths from employees with the Broward County Public Schools included a female teacher, age 48, female teaching assistant, 49, among others. They worked at an elementary school, according to a statement made from the Broward Teachers Union. Second female elementary school teacher also died. The union said she was 48. Teachers and teaching assistant all died Within a 24-hour period, union officials said, we grieve their losses along with their families and the school communities they left behind, the union said. Second news article, headline is, Family Hope's story of unvaccinated Broward teacher dying from COVID-19 will help others to consider the shot. This was produced by Alex Finney, August 16th, and broadcast on WPLG-TV Miami. Dateline is Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Last week, three Broward County public school teachers lost their lives to COVID-19. Katina Jones was one of them. She was a vibrant teacher at Dillard Elementary School in Fort Lauderdale. Jones called her brother, Corey, and he knew something wasn't right. Her brother received a call, and after knowing something that wasn't right, he said, I, I was the one that picked up the phone when she wasn't sounding good, Corey Jones told Local 10 News. He called the ambulance that took her to the hospital. She went on a ventilator and she was in there, he said. She fought a good fight. But sadly, Katina passed away at 1.46 p.m. on Tuesday, August 10th. She was not vaccinated. Looking back, 
I think she would have taken the vaccine eventually, but like other people, she was hearing things that weren't necessarily true and trying to decide that and weigh the options, Jones said. Dr. Rosalind Osgood, chair of the Broward School Board, knew Katina well and said she was just as heart-filled with her students as she was with her family. I know she was committed to her parents and took them to get vaccinated, said Osgood. Jones was only 49 years old. Her brother agreed to talk to Local 10 News with the hope that their story will move others toward the vaccine. If we can use my sister Katina Jones as the caveat to that and push that narrative throughout the community, I think her death will not be in vain, he said. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation she probably doesn't need introduction on COVID calls, but let me introduce her anyway. Dr. Esther Chernak is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health, Drexel University's School of Public Health. And she also holds a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. Prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. And she is a regular contributor to COVID calls. Esther Chernak, it's great to see you. Likewise, happy to be here. So we know you're in Philadelphia, so I don't have to ask you the question anymore about where you're calling from, but I would like to ask the question just about how things are, are looking in Philly. And I, I used to, even months ago, would ask these questions and the, the answers were usually something along the lines of not much has changed, but I don't know if that's true now. Yeah, it's interesting. How are things here? You know, um, our city is pretty well vaccinated from the perspective compared to other places in the country. We have around, I think, 58, 60% total vaccination rate, much higher among older people. Um, and the state is a little bit similar to the state of Pennsylvania. And, you know, we are at the begin. what I think is the beginning um, maybe more beyond the beginning of another surge, a fourth surge. We had done, you know, we were quite, uh, we had a lot of COVID transmission in the winter and spring. And then um, as we ramped up vaccinations, um, things started to look great. And there were several weeks in the summer where we had, you know, one, 2% positivity in terms of our tests, test, you know, PCR positivity and maybe 60, 70 cases a day. That was like our low. And then the last, I would say, four to six weeks, as Delta has been surging throughout the rest of this country, uh, we started to see more and more Delta variant here in the city. And we are now seeing at least 300 plus cases a day, PCR positivity around six, seven percent. Um, we are beginning to see an increase in hospitalizations, but um, it's not as bad, I think, as in parts of the country where the vaccination rates are 20 to 30 percent um, and the case counts are that much higher. And I think it remains to sort of be seen what happens from here. Our commissioner of health has been very aggressive about layering additional um, transmission barriers on to vaccinations. We've you know, she's recommended and required masks in all public settings um, that are indoors. This week, um, they're the health department is actually trying to implement vaccine passports and require businesses to check vaccine status of um, of uh, of you know patrons and and customers um, um, and um, 
you know, and require them of their staff and um, um, employees. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. I think the I think she's trying to be aggressive and head off what could be um, a significant surge. And we'll just have to see. And we'll have to see, you know, how you know whether a vaccination rate as high as what Philadelphia has isn't is any kind of a wall against Delta. It doesn't appear to be. On the other hand, because we've certainly seen other jurisdictions with pretty high vaccination rates like ours, um, 60-ish percent, um, still see a lot of disease. And I think we probably will as well. I mean, the, the people are saying that, you know, to really have a wall of uh, protection, you need to have an immunization rate of around 85, 90%. We are not there. You know, we are seeing more and more cases among younger people. In Philly, the highest uh, age, the age group with the highest transmission rate is the 20 to 34-year-old age group. We're seeing more and more infections in younger children. Um, so we're seeing what the rest of the other, what the, what the Southern United States is seeing. And I'm sure you're quite familiar with what's happening in Florida and Texas and Louisiana and Alabama, but it's not nearly as bad. And our hope is that our higher vaccination rates and more aggressive approaches, approaches to other layers, we'll head it off. We'll have to see. Before Delta, was that, that wall against COVID vaccination rate, was that lower? With yeah. I think so. I think the big issue is that the R naught, the reproduction number and the number of cases that occur after exposure to a single case is much higher with Delta. And because of that, you need much higher vaccination rates to really uh, diminish transmission in a population. So the alpha variant and the, uh, the variant before that, you know, um, was even less contagious. Um, you know, the, the R naught was somewhere around two, maybe three. Delta's estimated at least six, depending on, you know, uh, the population, et cetera. So we need much higher vaccination rates. I mean, Delta is just remarkably contagious, you know, 1,000 times the amount of virus and respiratory secretions than the original strain, 50 times more contagious, uh, seems to be much more um um, contagious for young kids. We're seeing a lot of infections in children now. We did not see these same infections um, in children in the earlier variants. So it's a different, it's a different animal. Were you expecting a variant? Um, and, I, and, and also, were you expecting a variant of, of this lethality or this transmissibility to come along? <laughs> You know, that's a great question. Um, no, I think the short answer is no, although I probably should have. I mean, it stands to reason that if you have widespread, unhindered transmission in parts of the world, you know, you have lots of opportunities for virus, for novel viruses to emerge, novel mutations to occur and novel viruses to emerge. And it stands to reason that, you know, an ecologically fit virus that has great replication potential and contagiousness would emerge from that. I don't think anyone quite realized just how quickly that was going to happen. And I think we were upset. We've been obsessed as we think about variants of concern, thinking about vaccine evasion, immune evasion. Um, Delta gives us a little bit of that, but more of the contagiousness and other, other aspects that are, that are, um, that are problematic. I mean, the, the vaccine evasionness, evasiveness is a problem, but it's, at the moment, it seems that the currently available vaccines, certainly the mRNA vaccines and even the viral vector vaccines are pretty good against protecting very severe disease, hospitalization, death. Um, not as effective as preventing infection in general, which of course is somewhat problematic. People don't get as sick, but some people do get sick. And of course, um, they're 
potentially going to transmit the virus, um, not for, as, for, for a much shorter period than someone who wasn't vaccinated, but um, there's a little bit of vaccine evasion with Delta. And I think we were looking at that. I think no one quite anticipated that we'd have an, another highly contagious virus mm. so quickly. And interestingly, you know, we live in a world where people are pretty much not traveling and yet still, you know, you have viruses. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the adage, we're not safe until we're all safe. You know, you have a virus emerging in, in, in India and then quickly ends up in the UK and then it's all over Europe and now it's all over the US. And this virus is so fit from a replication perspective, it doesn't take long for it to quickly become the most prevalent virus. And it's basically, that's where we are in Philadelphia right now in a matter of, you know, less than a couple of months. It's such an, I mean, so many things to what you just said, but one that really struck me is, is again, that, you know, one of the early discussions, you know, how did COVID get around the world so quickly? And of course, it's because half the people I know could tell a story about traveling in January and February of 2020. So there's part of your answer, right? But with Delta, it's got to be a different sort of discussion, as you said. I mean, people are not traveling as freely. And there's there's no public health agency in the world that's not attuned to COVID at this point. And it still has moved through and replaced the original strain. And become, I don't know if it's the dominant variant everywhere in the world, but it's, it is. I think it might be at this point. I'm not sure what's happening in South America, but I think it might be. Uh, I'd be curious to see, you know, we have such intense transmission in the southern United States, as you know, and I'm certain there are novel variants that might just be variations of Delta that either are emerging or have emerged in, in out of that cauldron as well. You know, it's just a waiting game, <laughs> you know. So I, I don't want to ask you to predict the future, but um, this is a question that comes from my uh, limited virology understanding. But should I then be expecting there's going to be, I've heard people talk about the Lambda variant. There's another one coming down the road that's even somehow more transmissible than Delta and will be vaccine resistant. Is that something I should just start making peace with? Yeah, I mean, I think we still don't know what we don't know. You know, if we could, mm. if we could pick up the pace of global vaccination, and pick up the pace of vaccination in in parts of the United States, um, we would diminish that risk <laughs> and that likelihood. Um, you know, it's it's quite remarkable how effective the vaccines really are. And so, if we could get to a point where you know, we're not, we're basically, you know, creating the conditions whereby, you know, viral variants will emerge freely. And I think if we could just pick up the pace of global vaccinations, we would reduce that risk. But that said, we're certainly not doing that imminently. So I think we can anticipate the emergence of variants that are, yes, both high, more more contagious or certainly as contagious as Delta, um, or more, you know, fit for human infection in other ways that maybe we even can't predict. Um, and yeah, potentially vaccine evasion. I mean, you know, it's interesting, and you know, Delta's emerged in places where vaccine rates were quite low. So I don't think that's creating selection pressure, but there's a certain randomness, you know, you're going to get changes in the spike protein um, that will affect vaccine efficacy. Um, it does seem to be kind of a tighter situation, you know, that if you have really high titers of antibody, um, you know, that might make a difference, which is partly why the U.S. and Israel, it's partly why Israel has begun the, the booster shot. And you'll notice Israel's mm-hmm. begun a booster shot with the same vaccine that it started out with. Um, and uh, I know I think we're waiting to see how well that's going to work. There's some preliminary data that I've seen that shows that on, among the populations they've boosted, those age groups, we're starting to see case counts, counts drop, 
who knows if that's because of the vaccine or not, but it's not a new vaccine engineered for the new strain. It's the same mm -hmm. vaccine. So it's really just boosting the immune response and that appears to be effective. So there's a lot of unknowns here, um, but I do think it's likely that, yeah, we will start to see over time, um, we're gonna see new new strains emerge. And of course the, the potential for vaccine evasion is, is the scary thing that I think we're all concerned about. The good news is that, you know, some of the vaccines that we're relying, that we are relying on really allow us to customize vaccines to different strains. Um, and I think what we're looking at, I think, mm -hmm. in the in the for, in the longer term is what is this going to look like when we're when it's endemic? And, I, you know, it may be it may be something like what we're starting to see now in terms of the symptomatology among vaccinated people. You know, we're going to see disease and we're going to and, and in some people it will be nothing. And in some people it will be a mild respiratory infection or a cold. And in some people they'll be really sick. Um, but at some point, everybody's going to be immune to this in some way, shape or form. You know, they'll have seen this virus either through an infection mm -hmm. or through vaccination or through some combination of those. And it'll still circulate, but hopefully without the you know, terrible consequences that we've seen and there are seeing now. Um, and we'll have to get used to that. We're going to have to get used to that. We're going to live with this in the same way that we live with influenza and parainfluenza and corona, other coronaviruses. Um, and, you know, we're sort of on our way there, but, you know, with horrific pain as we, as we you know, as immunologically naive people are getting infected at, at the early phases of this. There's something kind of fascinating and counterintuitive in what you said a minute ago, too, about the sort of vaccine evasion problem with if I understand it right, the, the best way to avoid a variant emerging, which will evade vaccine, is to get vaccinated. Yes. <laughs> it's it a little is bit of, of a twist, right? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's theoretically plausible that you could have sufficient numbers of folks vaccinated in a population that, and that would, in fact, select for uh, strains that could evade, you know, um, antibodies that are prevalent in the population. But what we're seeing, which is interestingly, is the is the selection pressure of just, you know, of you know, high high viral replication in populations that are basically under vaccinated. So it is curious, and I think we're still we're still figuring this out, and you know, trying to understand the ecology of this virus in populations that are non-immune, partially immune maybe even higher, higher levels of immunity in some places. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to public health expert Esther Chernak today. Um, let me follow up a little bit more on vaccines. So um, from putting your kind of public health communication glasses on here, how at this point is it possible to use public health tools, communication tools, whatever is available to us to get more people vaccinated? And what I mean by that, I guess I'm thinking of the U.S. here. People who've just decided they're not going to, or they're just going to wait indefinitely, like the obituary that I read at the top, a person, we don't know more than what was in the obituary, but at least what was stated, that she was instrumental in getting her parents vaccinated, but she herself had not yet made that 
decision. She's under 50. She gets COVID, presumably Delta variant, and she dies. Is that those are just the stories we have to live with now, or is there some way to still move more people into that vaccinated population? So I think there's multiple different reasons for vaccine hesitancy. Um, but I think that the levers that we have um, in public health are at the moment probably rely less on effective communication and more on, uh, um, you know, bigger hammers like vaccine mandates, um, like vaccine requiring vaccine passports to get into places, um, um, you know, mandates from the perspective of, um, you know, um, you know, employment, college entry, et cetera. We're starting to see more and more of those. Um, the city just, you know, in Philadelphia, just set up a ma vaccine mandate for its for its all of its employees. We'll see how that goes. And if you're if you if you have an exemption or you refuse to get vaccinated, you have to get tested twice a week. Um, I think those things will make a big difference, actually, in terms of encouraging vaccination. I think a formal, full FDA approval of these vaccines will go a long way to improving confidence in the vaccine and also, I think, uh, uh, improving the confidence of institutions who are reluctant to impose mandates on an authorized but not approved vaccine. So those are levers that I think will make a difference. Um, I think, you know, in terms of vaccine hesitancy, you know, to, in my mind, what I'm what we're seeing in the U.S. is really, I think, two very different phenomena that probably have to be approached differently. Um, there is sort of the politically aligned vaccine hesitancy where that we're seeing in many southern states of just lot, you know, people who are uh, have right wing conservative um, ideology who equate refusing vaccines with re refusing masks and you know. Uh, you know, seizing their personal liberties. And, um, and that's, it's, you know, it's a tribal kind of, I'm not going to get the shot because I don't believe in the shot. And this is my choice. Um, and that's very hard, I think, to deal with. And I think the elected officials in those states um, where that kind of sentiment is prevalent are reinforcing that. And that's, that's a challenge. And we're seeing this, you know, horrific situation right now in the American South. Um, but I think in where I live and work in Philadelphia, um, we have pockets of folks who are not vaccinated. They are by and large communities of color who have a legacy of mistrusting the uh, the medical establishment for all for appropriate reasons. And, um, you know, concern about the side effects, um, you know, um, concerns about what people are saying about the vaccine, some of which are not true. Um, and I, it's interesting. I think it, I think it's challenging. And I think that's where vaccine mandates and passports can make a difference. I think we could do a much better job sort of penetrating communities that are disconnected from healthcare. Um, I think about my own clinic, like I, in the last uh, couple of weeks, I've, many of my patients are vaccinated by now. I, I, I largely care for, I work in a safety net healthcare system. I do primary care in Philadelphia. The overwhelming majority of my patients are African-American. Some are African, some are African-American. And um, last week I was six for six. I had six patients not vaccinated and I convinced them all to get vaccine. What were their reasons for being vaccinated, for not being vaccinated? You know, I think it was, um, concerned, somebody in their family or a peer had told them something that made them nervous. Somebody had side effects. They weren't sure. They wanted to talk to me first. Mm. Um, and and it was, it's clear to me in our conversations that um, they trust me because I'm their doctor, not because I'm a doctor, but I'm their doctor. And right. I've been with them for a while now, and they know I have their best interests in mind. And there's sort of, I'm, I'm probably the first person who's countered 
all the bad things they've heard about the vaccine. And I'll say to them, why are, what are you afraid of? What are you hearing? And we go through it all one by one, you know, and then I try to sort of respond to each of their concerns and then give them my, you know, coercive, um, you know, a spiel about why it's so important for them to get the vaccine. And I, and especially now, I'm sure they can feel my, not just passion, but concern. I mean, we're live, we're in a city where Delta is rising, where it's, in my view, it's a, not, a, if you're not vaccinated, it's not a question of whether, but when you're going to get the shot. Most of my patients are working in high risk situations. And I just say, you, you know, you really should do it. And and then if, if they're wavering, or I can tell they're about to get it, I have the benefit of working in a public health clinic. And I can say, and I can give you the vaccine right now. <laughs> because we have a vaccine and it's, you know, you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to call the CVS and do a complicated online thing. We're just going to give it to you. And, you know, I, we that those are the kinds of things that I think are successful, but those are one by one things. Those aren't things that they're harder to enact those kinds of things on a population basis, but that's probably what we need to do. We need to sort of figure out a way to, you know, get it into primary care offices, leverage relationships that pays, that people might have with their primary care doc, and just sort of come up with other trusted messengers, easy ways to get and to get the vaccine, and and kind of sort of disabuse people of some of the concerns that they have. But that's a little bit different than what's happening in the South, where you, where people, you know, it's it's like a tribal thing, you know, where where people are refusing the vaccine in the same way that they, it's like a political identification. Uh, I'm going to try to contact Dr. Fauci's office after this call because I think I've come up with a strategy um, to deal with vaccine hesitancy is that you have to personally visit every person in America. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work for you, but you've been working very hard. So uh, six for six. But the way you thank you for describing and discussing that um, the ways you handle the communication and the kinds of hesitancies that people bring. And it's still it's a great reminder that this is also still a conversation just about health access in America. And if people don't have access to a healthcare provider or, or a trusted healthcare adjacent provider who can counter much of what they're hearing, maybe they just don't decide or they just keep waiting. I think that's exactly what's happening. And there's, there's this inertia. I mean, nobody likes to get a shot. No. You know, <laughs> and so there's an inertia and they're busy and they're working and, well, I'll just do it later. And, you know, I think people don't really appreciate that, how bad it can be. They take their chances. Uh, they are still this legacy that, uh, you know, notion that, you you know, you have to be, if you're really going to suffer the consequences of this, it's, you have to be much older or have underlying disease. There's still this refusal to realize that, you can you can be completely felt by this infection at a young age and be a completely healthy person. And I think I think we haven't done a good job, I think, of of conveying that as well. So, yeah, it's uh, it's there's it's it's a complicated problem. And I, you know, and I think I've been reading a lot of the stuff that Peter Hotez has been writing lately. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot about risk communication in the context of crises and, um, you know, the. Um, the principles of risk communication that public health professionals try to abide by and utilize to convey messages and um, promote effective health behaviors. But this is a ball game that's completely different because we have this, you know, anti-science misinformation campaigns and these well-funded political groups with international support. And I don't, I, I struggle. And I think a lot about the degree to which 
our, you know, our well-intentioned, you know, plans, you know, fly in the face of these politically motivated misinformation, disinformation campaigns. It's very different than, you know, being first, being right, being credible. <laughs> That's what, I mean, how can we hold up, how can we, how can that stand up against some of these just pervasive uh, disinformation campaigns? It's, I think it's really tough. I was just speaking before I talked with you today with Anna Muldoon, who's a researcher on conspiracy theory. And, and we were talking about the, the kind of the mainstreaming of some of this anti-vaccination um, conspiracy thought being mainstreamed into a political party, which we've just never seen in American history to this degree. Um, and I don't know how you, I don't know how you, you can't counter that because a particularly a public health office is not allowed to go out there and ask, are you a Republican? And then have a tailor. I don't want to speak too soon. Maybe there are tailored messages for conservatives that are being developed, but it seems like that would be a, a, a very gray area for public health officials. Yeah. I mean, I think what you need are conservative leaders that are respected within those communities right. advocate for vaccination. Um, and, you know, I don't, I'm not seeing that in some states. I mean, you're from Texas. I'm sure you're paying attention to what's going on there. Yeah, Greg Abbott I think I just COVID. saw before I logged into, I'm sorry. Greg Abbott got COVID today. Yeah, I just saw that. Hopefully he'll do well. I think he was vaccinated. So, was. so I'm sure hopefully he'll do fine. He should do fine. Um, unlike so many other Texans who were not vaccinated and who are in the hospital right now. Um, you know, it's it's tricky. Um, you know, I think some conservative leaders can do that. But, it's, I've, you know, I'm reading just the press has been reporting on some of what some, what some of these vaccinated or unvaccinated individuals say when they get COVID, you know, and I'm, a, I'm appalled, you know, oh, I, we were strong. We're a strong conservative family. We didn't think we needed it. Mm -hmm. um, someone, there were, I saw an interview with a mother whose child had COVID at age, I think he was age eight, and she talked about how sick he's been, weeks of fever, he's really struggling. And the reporter said, are you and your son vaccinated? Oh, no, we're not going to do that. No. It, it's just, it's hard to really penetrate that kind of ideology. But that's different than what, you know, some of the vaccine vaccine reluctance that I'm that that I'm seeing in Philadelphia and that other places are seeing they're they're just different animals you know I think it is important to differentiate those and this it's not obviously not nobody in public health is throwing in the towel you got to go back in and and face it again tomorrow and I wanted to ask you about that I had I talked to Art Kaplan yesterday bioethicist um, at NYU and he said you know I'm he said I'm paraphrasing here. I hear a lot about the rights of the unvaccinated and I'm tired of that. I want to hear more about the rights of the vaccinated. And there was a real frustration in in his voice. You mentioned Peter Hotez. I think Peter Hotez has also kind of really kind oh, of sure. pushed that discussion. And and so it's a frustration. Um and a and and a, a call to shift the dialogue in the political space to say, hey, why are we talking so much about these people who have the right not to be vaccinated? Shouldn't we be talking more about the rights of the rest of us not to get sick? I just don't, I don't know who has to have that talk or how we even begin to reframe it that way. It makes a lot of sense to me, but I have no public health communication responsibilities. I'm just a college professor with a microphone. So how how do we engage that? I don't know if you even share that point of view, but I'm curious your thoughts. Oh, I totally do. I totally do. I am, I am... Uh, an old-fashioned, old-school public health person. 
the rights of the public. Um, I'm all about, you know, locking people up who have active tuberculosis, who refuse to take their drugs. I am, <laughs> I'm okay. very strong about that stuff. But I, uh, you know, all of the, you know, public, this classic public health ideology was the reason you require vaccinations is to protect the health of the public. Um, it's, you know, the unvaccinated don't have rights, you know, the rights involve, you know, what should be a highly narrow medical exemptions. Frankly, that's the only exemption I might favor, the only exemption I might favor. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm sickened by these, uh, um, by the film footage of intensive care units and, um, in, in hospital garages, you know, and, you know, hospitals filled up around the country, um, with people who are largely unvaccinated and, um, dismissive of, of this risk and placing, you know, the whole society at risk or those whole communities at risk, not just the healthcare workers who are taking care of these folks who hopefully are vaccinated, but, you know, they are, they are taking up hospital beds and making it impossible for hospitals to do general basic care. So if you happen to, you know, have a baby or have a heart attack or a car accident, uh, you have a problem if you're in certain, certain parts of these countries where there are no hospital beds left. So I, I have huge issues with that, and I, I, I completely agree with Art about the rights of the un, the rights of the vaccinated, um, and 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 you know framing vaccination as 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 protecting the health of the public. That, but you know, we rely on laws to to do that. You know, right. we've done that since smallpox, and we now are in a society where we are seeing elected officials strip away the public health regulations and laws that gave public health agencies the authority to do this. And it's interesting, people, there's such fuzzy thinking. You know, we've had vaccine mandates for years for school entry, for healthcare work, for all kinds of things. Why should COVID 19 be any different? We actually have a vaccine that is actually better in many cases than the vaccines that we've been mandating for yet for years or decades. Um, I don't know how to frame that. I don't, you know, I don't know why we're having such a hard time having this conversation. Uh, with communities, you know, in terms of, you know, you're getting vaccinated, not just for yourself, but for the community, um, you know, with sex, with sexually transmitted diseases, um, we, we, um, you know, the way you stop transmission is by treating index cases. And there's laws on the book that allow us to do that. There's laws on the book that allow us to find their contacts and treat them. Uh, you know? um, public health, I mean, public health, but people don't realize it has police power. You know, at the state level, public health has police power. We shut things down. We mandate treatment. We have to go to court to do this. Um, mm -hmm. But we've not succeeded in applying those old school, old fashioned, longstanding public health principles in, in right, at least at this moment, in terms of where we are in the pandemic. We have a successful vaccine. It's, it's remarkable that the whole world, you know, we have the whole world wanting this vaccine, except for <laughs> parts of our country in some ways. So the vaccine mandate ban, which I've, I have a colleague here in South Korea at KAIST, and he said, I understand vaccine mandates, but I've never heard of a vaccine mandate ban. I said, well, this is USA politics 2021. But I wonder about that because um, there's pushback. I mean, the school districts in Texas and in Florida, where they've basically said, where they've either sort of reframed it. Uh, with a, like a loophole in the law or defining it as a sort of a emergency management issue or just flat said, come take us to jail. I mean, uh, some of the footage from a, one of the school districts in in Florida, 
one of these um, people in school board said, come lock me up, but I, we're going to wear a mask in this district. You know, so it's a, it's a, a kind of an enactment of this rights of the vaccinated that um, is interesting to note, but you know, the power of the governor is still the power of the governor. So I wonder how you see that resolve. Are these mandate bans going to, you know, hold up? Is this like a new feature that we also have to deal with as part of this pandemic? Or is this I just guess, politics time? I don't know. I don't know. I think we're seeing this play out. I mean, you know, the states that have these mandate ban bans are among the states that have the most significant disease. You know, they're the states that uh, are requesting ventilators from the federal government <laughs> um, and need additional staff. Um, you know, the governor of Florida, which is one of the states that had the mandate ban, is now um, trying to scale up Regeneron, um, which is the monoclonal antibody treatment that needs to be given early in disease and it seems to prevent the severe sequelae. Though I saw an article today that shows that he has some financial interests, at least are friends or colleagues with, you know, supporters that have financial interests in that company that, you know, in the company. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to know, um, you know, what, you know, you're relying on, on courts in many ways to enforce these public health rules. And it's it's tough when you have elected officials who aren't standing behind public health regulations. I don't know what happens in that situation. I mean, um, you know, you're going to end up canceling. What will end up happening is that schools are going to shut down. That's happening now because of just huge case counts. Um, you know, it may be that in some places where there's mask or there's where people are refusing vaccines, uh, you have to have the power at least to fire them. You could fire people. Don't come to work if you're not going to be vaccinated. That that's that's happens in healthcare. Um, if you're not vaccinated, go find another job. You know, mm -hmm. and and um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how this plays out. Truthfully, I mean, um, unless unless the way it plays out is just disease, widespread disease, um, and we go through the the, the nightmare of, of of sick people and. Uh, critically ill people and deaths before we see we get to the other side of this. I hope that's not how it plays out, but I, it's hard to know. I mean, maybe somebody will challenge mask mandates or ma these anti-mandates in, in courts. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. There's a clue in what you just said, I guess, which is that school districts, um, maybe they were pre-existing thresholds or they were created last year, but there's a threshold of cases they reach in which they shut down. And yeah. so these shutdowns are the answer to the mandate ban, I suppose, in places where they're just not willing to fight back or they can't. And no one wants that. Everybody no. wants kids back in school. Kids want to be Absolutely. back in school. And the, and, the, and the sad part with these with the Delta variant is that, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, when we didn't really understand things, uh, we didn't see a lot of pediatric infection. We didn't see schools as drivers of transmission in the way, in the way we do with influenza. We are seeing that with Delta. Um, we're seeing, you know, widespread transmission among children, transmission in schools, and we're going to end up having, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people in quarantine and isolation. Um, I don't know how that plays out in some of those places in, in those communities that are so anti-vaccine, anti-mandate. I don't know if that will be an, you know, an epiphany or change minds or not.
quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls with Esther Chernak is my guest today. And we have a couple minutes left. I want to get a couple more questions in. Um, Esther, one of which I've wanted, been wanting to ask you, which is that um, just because of COVID, and we're 18 months into this and across the United States, normal public health doesn't just suspend itself. And we're starting to get some interesting data about um, in the in the medical space, deferred surgeries, um, multiply deferred, like people having to defer surgeries multiple times, the toll that that's taking on people um, in terms of pain, um, you know, and that's that's what's happening or not happening in the in the hospital. I, I don't know how long that's sustainable, and I guess that's my question to you about public health more generally. There's, there's still a lot of other kinds of disease and public health concerns out there. What's mm-hmm. on your mind in that sense, and uh, can we continue to fight a, a war on multiple public health war on multiple fronts? How long can that hold? I don't know. I mean, in public health departments around the country, certainly at the local and state level, which are very, very lean, um, everybody's robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's all hands on deck, which you can do for a month or two or maybe three for 18 months. That's challenging. And I'm always amazed when I get a health alert from the city of Philadelphia about a salmonella cluster. Or a uh, <laughs> or STD issues, and I think good for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they're they're able they're doing other things, but I think it's really challenging. There's just there aren't that many people in you know working at these agencies, and I think we're seeing increases in sexually transmitted diseases from public health perspective. I mean, when I think about other things that I worry about in the city, you know, we have a huge issue with opioid overdoses and uh, addiction in this country. That's that has gotten worse during the pandemic. That um, is a huge issue in Philadelphia, but really all over the U.S. I think gun violence is is an epidemic proportions, and I think we're paralyzed as a country, which is which is tragic. Um, that really, I think, of all the things um, from a health perspective that concern me, that's probably one of the most significant. Um, you know, some of the lockdowns and um, you know um, you know limited social interactions that we've that we've enacted to limit COVID spread has resulted in declines in other respiratory viral infections, influenza, even some GI viruses. Um, And so I think, you know, paradoxically, we've had some improvements, but I think Mm. as we start to loosen up as a country and really as a globe, we're going to start to see, you know, increases in those things as well. Um, But I think it's challenging. I think, you know, this has really demonstrated um, huge gaps in our public health system, but even our healthcare system. I mean, you look at hospitals that are so reliant on the revenues of elective procedures um, that, you know, cancel them. And all of a sudden, you know, without, you know, these, without, you know, the American, you know, the the CARES Act and these federal rescue plans, they would be shuttered. And we will see smaller community hospitals shutter because of the combination of poor payer mixes and, uh, not being able to do the elective procedures that you know keep the keep the lights on and mm. the doors open. Um, that's an entire COVID calls episode that I have to put together. I hadn't even really. There's, I mean, it makes total sense. The elective procedures that keep the lights on in a lot of smaller hospitals, which are being deferred and deferred. Once the ACA, once the the payments are done and fully exhausted, where's that going to yeah, come from? Yeah, I've heard that from the public health agencies as well. You know. It's always feast or famine in public health. They throw money, the federal government throws money at problems and you hire, 
and you're afraid to hire because you know in 12 months the money's going to go away and you can't keep people on. Um, but I do suggest the whole, it would be cool, it would be, I think it'd be very interesting to interview some healthcare executives um, and people managing healthcare systems and hospitals. Mm. Um, it's a, in this country, it's been a trying time. I think trying time everywhere, but in this country with such a non system healthcare system, you know, it's really just. Um, um, you know, this capitalist system where we have so many different payers and with different levels of reimbursement. Um, it's been a very challenging time. And, you know, we, we th there's no question the CARES Act has, has been a leveler, but we'll see what happens when those monies stop flowing. Last question for you, Esther, which is just about your own backyard there at Drexel University. You've played a crucial role in the um, the team that has tried to keep track of this pandemic in the context of the university. And as I understand it, Drexel has a mask mandate and a vaccine mandate for students returning to campus. Drexel has a slight advantage here too, that it usually doesn't start its fall term until a little bit into September. So you get the chance to see what's happening at other universities first, but it's a lot of responsibility and you have a lot of colleagues there that have helped you um, with that. What's what are you looking for? What are the hardest challenges in terms of bringing students back to class and, and getting through the term to Christmas without having to shut down? So um, the thing that's going to help us the most, I think, is our vaccine mandate. And it's a mandate that's not just for students, but also staff and faculty. The whole community has a mandate. And, and that's huge. Um, we, we you know, we believe that that will that that makes the campus a much safer place. Um, the challenges are, um, you know, Drexel, like other universities around the U.S., are there were determined to be in-person, face-to-face live. We want that. And I think students want that. People want some semblance of what they, you know, what they, you know, what they associate with co a college and university experience. They like, and they, you know, there's a, there's all kinds of social and pedagogical reasons to have in-person, in-person learning. Um, you know, I think the challenges for us have been, um, we have really good vaccine uptake. We have some exemptions and we're working through that. And how do we manage students who are unvaccinated or the staff and faculty who are unvaccinated because of exemptions? The bigger thing I think for us at the moment is this revelation that breakthrough infections with the Delta variant in the context of a vaccinated uh, community are, are not that uncommon. And so we, like every other um, jurisdiction and campus, are, are trying to figure out how do we handle um, a non-zero transmission risk in the context of a vaccinated campus. And, you know, there are some people who estimate that, you know, vaccine efficacy for just disease um, maybe as low as 50, 60 percent. So we're going to see as people come back, whether it's students, actually a lot of it's going to be in students because they're social on the weekends. How do we how do we create a campus where everyone feels safe? And so what we're doing now in Drexel, that's why we added the mask mandate as a layer on top of the vaccination. And now we're sort of trying to, you know, there's not a lot of data. I think that probably the combination of essentially a 95% or higher vaccinated community wearing masks is as safe as we'll see it. I think that's probably extremely safe. Um, but there's, you know, we don't have a lot of statistics at the moment. So there's a skeptical there are skeptical students and skeptical uh, skeptical faculty who haven't been on campus in a year and a half or, you know, concerned about that. Sure. Um, 
And, you know, we have the issue of how do we handle little things like where do people eat? You have to take your mask off. Do you segregate that? (laughs) What do we do with sports teams? Um, How often do we test people who are unvaccinated? So those logistics, I think, are things we're working out like every other university is. Um, And how do we just, you know, a lot of it is going to be, you know, collecting data. You know, I think, you know, I think what we're seeing now in a lot of campuses is, you know, students are getting, you know, we're seeing students come back and they're, and, and people are getting sick, not very sick, mild illness, but they're mm-hmm. enough so that they want to get tested and they're positive. So what do we do with that information? Um, and if they were in class yesterday, but in a completely mass setting, are those contacts at risk? It's not clear. You know? right, right. Uh, they're all vaccinated. They're masked. The student was masked. Is that a, is that an exposure? We, we should treat it like it is. Um, you know, they didn't get the infection in the class. They probably got the infection at a party over the weekend. Right. Um, so how do we create a safe space for the campus? And what are the layers we need to implement so that people feel comfortable? It boggles the mind. You'll have so much work <laughs> ahead of you. It's exhausting. The, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can usually catch COVID Calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. This has been a special episode of COVID Calls, 7 p.m. Eastern time with great COVID Calls friend Esther Chernak. And um, thanks, Esther. We'll have to have you back soon to follow up on these. I'm particularly want to be curious to follow up with you on booster shots as we talk about that maybe a little bit in the future. And if hesitancy goes up as you ask people to take more shots. I'll be fascinated to get your thoughts on that as as we go along, as we get a little bit more data on that. But as always, great to be with you and, and learned a lot. Thanks again. Happy to be with you. Be well. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. <laughs>